Welcome back to Crime Capsule. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. There really is nothing like it. The end of the year, the beginning of summer, the feeling of the sun on your back and the wind in your hair, the sweet, sweet taste of freedom. For decades, Americans of every stripe and rank have used June, July, and August to check out, to disappear, and leave the world behind. It's our tradition. It's what we do, even if, especially if, we're not on vacation, we are on the run. This summer, Crime Capsule is going on the lam. In honor of the great American road trip, we're putting the top down, throwing our bags in the trunk, and chasing after those criminals who have made their great escape. The fugitives, the runaways, the ones who made it, ones whose flight ended in a six-foot cell or worse. To kick this series off, we're honored to have as our guest Tobin Gilman, historian and author of The McGlincy Killings in Campbell, California, an 1896 unsolved mystery, published by the History Press. This and next week, Tobin will take us through this incredible crime, a case that remains open to this day. I should say that for our more squeamish listeners, all one or two of you, the account of the murder in this episode is a bit gruesome, so feel free to fast forward past that when it arrives. But we're glad you're here with us, and if you have any ideas about where to find the killer, well, we are all ears. Thanks for joining us on Crime Capsule. It is such a pleasure to have you. Thank you, Ben. I appreciate uh, you inviting me to participate today. You are taking us to Campbell, California, which is very close to the Bay Area, to San Jose. You are actually from this area, born and raised, but something interesting about this book is that you had never heard of the murder that you were writing about until you were actually an adult. How did you come to this story? Yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting, Ben. Um, as you mentioned, I grew up uh, mostly in San Jose, and uh, when I was a teenager in the uh, the 1970s, um, my dad owned an industrial building in Campbell, California, and from time to time, I would go down there to do some maintenance on the building or landscape work and what have you, and the building was located on a street called McGlincy Avenue in Campbell, and I that was just another street name to me. It meant absolutely nothing. Um, Fast forward many, many years later, um, uh, it was probably around 2015, I guess, uh, I attended a lecture that was hosted by an organization called the Pioneers of Santa Clara County. And the guest speaker that day was San Jose's uh, official historian and also a, uh, a superior court judge, a gentleman by the name of Judge Burnell. And he told a story of what he referred to as the McGlincy Massacre. And I was absolutely fascinated by that story. And that was what inspired me to do more digging on my own and ultimately result, uh, write this book. How did the research first get started? Where did you start digging into archives and sources and newspapers and so forth? Well, I began the research just starting the way most people do. I started Googling. <laughs> and what sure. I realized is, you know, that there really wasn't a lot out there. There were uh, some fairly recent 
newspaper articles that sort of recapped the story. But I, I knew I would have to dig deeper. And I've had experience in doing historical research. I'm an antique bottle collector, meaning I collect bottles from the 1800s. And I've gotten quite adept at, uh, at researching the history of these various proprietors of medicines and beers and sodas and whiskeys and what have you. And there's so much information now on the Internet. Um, that you can get to through university archives, newspaper archives, and the like. And that's kind of how I began the the, uh, the search. And most of the information that I needed was in these old newspaper articles from the 1800s and beyond. So how long did it take you, say, from the moment that you really got neck deep in the work? You know, you really started making progress on it. How long, soup to nuts, was the research and writing process? Yeah, I think I started writing the book around uh, 2016, and it was published, I believe, in January of 2018. So about a year and a half to two years start to finish. Obviously, I didn't get up every morning and work, you know, eight or nine hours uh, on the book. Most of the work was on the research end. And the process of, of actually searching for newspaper articles can be really tedious and time-consuming. Names are spelled differently in different newspapers. There are different sources of newspaper articles from different papers from different parts of the country. And I eventually probably downloaded somewhere between 300 and 500 news articles. And then I I realized I needed a way of sorting and organizing these things so that I could begin to construct a, a narrative and an overarching story. That's what took most of the work. And when I finally got to putting pen to paper, uh, there were a couple of uh, false starts where I would get started and realize I was heading in a not so interesting direction. Um, but ultimately, uh, once I got on the path, the writing went pretty smoothly and pretty quickly. Yeah. It's funny. Research is like that, isn't it? I mean, you have the kind of the daily grind, the showing up for work, the butt in the chair style of kind of, okay, I'm going to look at this. I'm going to get through these 50 or 100 articles today and make sense out of them. And then every now and then you get that lightning strike, don't you? You find the thing, the one clue or the name or the point of connection that just propels the story forward. And suddenly it's like, you know, you've been running a marathon and, and somebody gives you just you know, a gallon of pickle juice and you've got two or three more miles in you, you know, right, right then and there, you got gas in the tank, you can go. Yeah, that's so totally true. And I'll give you an example of that. The first draft I did of the book, I, I think I was, uh, I felt compelled to uh, en encompass everything I was able to find. And so that first draft was was probably 250 to 300 pages long. <laughs> and I did not feel really good about it. And I actually hired a, a professional editor to critique it. And without going into the full story, she basically just came back and said, boy, it's really boring. You put me to sleep. Oh, no. <laughs> That's terrible. I, I, I paid her 500 bucks to tell me that, but it was actually $500 well spent. So I, uh, and, and by the way, um, what I was trying to do originally was model the style after, oh, I'm drawing a blank now, the author of Devil in the White City. Oh, yeah, uh, Eric Larson. Eric Larson, thank you. I love his writing style. Devil in the White City, uh, the, the book about the Lusitania, uh, the, in the Garden mm. of Beasts, about post, about early Germany during the uh, 
the rise of Hitler. He, he tells, he uses a very uh, nice style where he tells a true story, but it reads like a novel. One of the things I really struggled with was telling the, the story about the murder itself. And I, I must have written that section 10 times before it finally hit me that I was trying to reinvent the wheel. The story had been told so well by the reporter that wrote the San Francisco Call article that I ultimately just reprinted in the book. I said, why, why try to um, build upon perfection? And so ultimately I decided that uh, I was just going to use his rendition of that story, and I think it works really well. It's a very harrowing account, and we will come to it shortly. Um, readers who may not know your book, uh, they will have something to look forward to. It's a it's an account which sort of mixes purple prose with a pretty good account of what actually transpired on the night. And it's uh, difficult to read, but it is worth, uh, worth the journey. Tobin, set the stage for us, though. Take us back to Campbell in the late 1800s. Campbell is what you call an orchard town. And for folks who don't know Central California very well, they may not realize that much of the produce that they buy in the supermarket comes from uh, communities and settlements just like Campbell. They are major production centers for the nation's fruit and vegetables and, and other exported goods. So what was it like at the turn of the century back then? Sure. And I will just clarify for, for listeners, um, Campbell is actually not in the Central Valley. Um, the Central Valley is sort of the the breadbasket of, of the West in terms of agriculture. But we're in the Santa Clara Valley, which is part of the San Francisco Bay Area. And um, at that time, uh, the Santa Clara Valley, including San Jose, the city of Santa Clara, and the township of Campbell, were, were very agricultural. Um, by the turn of the century, the, the Santa Clara Valley as a whole uh, became known as the Valley of Heart's Delight because of its rich soil and beautiful climate that's just ideal for growing uh, uh, fruit, vegetables, and other types of produce. And so uh, that actually, that, that moniker, Valley of Heart's Delight, uh, was actually, it stuck right up until tech took over and, and it's now known as Silicon Valley. It's a really lovely term. I wish that we could continue to call it that. That's so nice. Yeah, it, it is, and and I will say that um, what you know this this entire area that was once orchards with prunes and cherries and apricots and other other trees, figs, mm. um, you, you know, it's now houses, suburbs, office buildings, etc. But I will tell you the uh, the soil and the weather is still here, and so mm. uh, our backyards are are just bustling with citrus trees and fruit trees that put out amazing fruit. But back then, um, that was, you know, back in the 1800s and early part of the 20th century, this was farm town. It was a farm community. Mm -hmm. And you didn't have big ag the way that you have now. What you had were small holdings, right? You had family farms, family ranches like the McGlincy Ranch. That is correct. So this crime takes place in May of 1896. And the the case and your book both open in this incredibly dramatic fashion. The sheriff of Santa Clara County, James Linden, receives word of the discovery of six bodies on a ranch 
uh, not far from from Campbell. Before we get into the events in particular of that night, will you just introduce us to the main characters here? Sure. I guess, I guess I'll start with the, uh, the main character, which was James Dunham. He was the killer. And uh, James Dunham was kind of a drifter, strange guy, and we'll get more into that later. But uh, he was in his early 30s, and he was married to a girl named Hattie Wells. Mm -hmm. And Hattie was the stepdaughter of Colonel McGlincy, uh, who owned owned the ranch. Colonel McGlincy was a Civil War veteran. He actually fought for the Confederacy under Stonewell Jackson. Colonel McGlincy had uh, moved to California from the East and married um, a woman named Ada Wells, who became Ada Wells McGlincy. And the couple lived on uh, the colonel's estate on the ranch with uh, Ada Wells's son from her previous marriage, Jimmy Wells, and her daughter, Hattie, who married James. And James had moved uh, into the house when he married Hattie. So that was the family. And then there were ranch hands that also lived lived on the property as well. Two who were featured in the book were... Um, Robert Briscoe, one of the victims, and a, a gentleman by the name of George Shabel, who actually escaped death that night, but was on the scene when it happened. One other name I forgot, Minnie Schessler. Minnie was kind of the nanny to the young baby that uh, Hattie and James had. So I had forgotten to mention initially the baby who was less than a year old, and the baby's nanny that was also on the scene. And as I understand it, Colonel McGlincy, he, through many decades of experience working in farming, both back east and then in the Midwest, and then um, now in California, I mean, he had done fairly well for himself, hadn't he? He was a prosperous rancher slash farmer by that point in his life. Yeah, that that is that is true. He had been successful. He originated in Illinois. He had been a, a farmer. Uh, also uh, worked a little bit in journalism. And when he came out west, like so many people did in the latter part of the eighteen hundreds, um, became quite prosperous with his uh, property in Campbell. And at the time this crime occurred in eighteen ninety six, he was a very respected. Uh, individual, not just in the township of Campbell, but the entire county of Santa Clara County. He was well-known and widely respected. It's one thing that comes up over and over again in your book as you get into the the aftermath of the crime and the search for the killer is that these are such known individuals in this community that there's a sort of sense of how could it happen to them, but also uh, people are identifying uh, the killer's trail by virtue of which horse they've seen, because everybody knows who's riding which horse, right? I mean, this really kind of interesting granularity uh, to, I'm going to mix my metaphors, but granularity to the fabric of the community here, isn't there? Absolutely. And just to put it in context, um, San Jose, which was and still is the center of Santa Clara Valley, Campbell was just a tiny little township. Um, but it, at the time of this crime, the population of San Jose was about 20,000 people. Campbell itself probably had maybe 1,000 or 2,000 people at most. Today, just by way of comparison, the population of San Jose is a million. 
So we don't know each other quite as intimately today <laughs> as, as they did back in uh, 1896. You, know, you might know who, what car your neighbor drives, but you probably don't know, uh, you know, past a few houses down or whose horse that is running down the street, you know, at this point. But That's right. So the night of the murder, um, what, what did Sheriff Linden find when he arrived on the property of the McGlincy Ranch? Bodies, blood, and mayhem. <laughs> um, he... What he came, what he discovered on the scene were was a body in front of the the residence, bodies in the house, and blood literally dripping from the second floor through the ceiling down to the first floor. He saw furniture that was smashed. He saw a guitar that was smashed from an altercation that took place during the during the crime itself, and uh, it, it had to have just been revolting to him, certainly shocking to him. How did he receive word to begin with? This is, of course, in the age uh, in which the fastest communication that we have is telegram, but then, of course, you need telegram offices and runners. Um, so who first alerted his attention to this, to the scene of this crime? Yeah, there was, uh, there was actually, it was, it was, they, they might have had telephones. I'm trying to remember if, if, if a call had come into the sheriff's office or if, uh, or if it had been a telegram or a telegraph, but um, it went into the county sheriff's office, and someone went to uh, Lyndon's house and gave him the news. And he did, he did discover it fairly quickly after uh, the events of the night. So um, the forgive me for saying this, but the bodies were still mostly warm, right? Which meant that they were able to organize an investigation into the sequencing. Of, of the murders fairly swiftly after they had taken place. Yeah, that's true. Um, you know, the murders themselves, I believe, took place around midnight, uh, a little bit before midnight. The, uh, the geographic proximity of where Lyndon lived, where the sheriff's office was, where the murder scene was, it's, it's within, you know, a 10-mile radius. So, to get news of the crime, to get over to the scene of the crime, probably took all of maybe 30 minutes. And the murders itself had probably taken place within the hour. So the choreography of this particular crime is actually very important. Um, it's because there are so many bodies, there was a specific order in which Dunham had planned to kill everybody and some things kind of went according to the to his uh machinations shall we say and then other things did did not so um we're going to treat this kind of like an episode of of columbo and for our younger listeners out there uh, who may not know the great 70s detective show uh, you always start by learning who done it right and then the detective has to figure out how they done it right over the course of the episode well worth your time if if you've never seen an episode but anyway Let's treat this like Columbo and help us to see the order in which these things took place and where things went wrong for Dunham. Dunham had been living at the ranch with the McGlincy family and his wife and their infant son, and things were not going well. He was not getting along with the rest of the family or his wife. The night of the crime, he was not home initially. Uh, sometime in the fair, fairly early part of the evening, Colonel McGlincy and McGlincy's son 
the killer's stepbrother, Jimmy Wells, and the ranch hand, George Shabel, had uh, left the house to go to a meeting in town. And leaving at home, uh, uh, Ada Wells, uh, McGlincy's wife, Ada Wells McGlincy, Hattie Dunham, Minnie Shessler, the nanny, and ranch hands that were on the property. Sometime around, I think about 10 o'clock or so, Dunham returned to the ranch. He went up to his wife's room on the second story of the house, calmly walked in there, and snapped her neck with his bare hands. Now, in the room next, uh, the baby, by the way, was in that room, uh, laying there uh, while all this happened. The, uh, the house, the nanny, Minnie Shessler, was in the next room. She heard the commotion and, and came to see what was going on, and he bludgeoned her with an ax. Then he went downstairs and essentially did the same thing to Mrs. McGlincy. He bludgeoned her with an ax and killed her. Um, and then he waited in the house for his brother-in-law and his father-in-law to get home. So later that evening, uh, McGlincy, Jimmy Wells, and George Shabel, the ranch hand, all returned to the, to the ranch. Uh, the colonel had asked Shabel to put the horses in the barn, and McGlincy and Jimmy Wells proceeded to walk into the house. When McGlincy stepped in the house, waiting in the shadows, waiting in the darkness for him, was Dunham. And Dunham bludgeoned him over the head with the blunt end of an axe and knocked him down. And then Jimmy Wells broke into uh, to the room and a big fight started. Now, Dunham had a gun in his hand. And eventually, after a very violent fight that uh, took place in several rooms, there was furniture broken and a guitar broken, uh, Dunham was finally able to shoot Jimmy Wells and kill him in the house. In the meantime, McGlincy recovered from the blow to the head and was able to slip out of the back window of the house. And he made his way into one of the uh, sleeping quarters where the ranch hands slept. And Dunham followed him out there. And uh, uh, McGlincy had tried to lock himself uh, into the, in, in this building, and Dunham shot through the building uh, McGlincy then staggered out, and as I recall properly, he, he died there on the ground. In the meanwhile, there was another ranch hand that had been sleeping in a bunk. He heard the commo commotion, tried to slip out the back window of the bunkhouse, and Dunham tracked him down and shot him in cold blood. So now Dunham is wondering, where's George Shable? Because he knew that there was one more person on the scene. Well, Shable, by this time, had heard the gunshots, had heard the commotion, and was hiding in the loft of the barn. Dunham goes into the barn. He looks around for Shable, and he can't find him. He walks up, he climbs up the ladder to the loft of the barn, uh, I believe struck a match, didn't see Shable, went downstairs, and Shable must have uh, let out a huge sigh of relief. <clears throat> and Dunham then fled on horseback, looking for Shable, hoping to kill him, um, and also making his escape. So Shable survived that night, and ultimately uh, Dunham run off, ran off into the night, 
And as he fled the ranch, by this time, neighbors had heard the gunfire and Dunham was actually spotted uh, along the road and actually had a confrontation, a conversation, I should say, with a, a neighbor. So people began to realize that uh, this man had just left the uh, McGlincy Ranch and, and in the aftermath realized that he had been the killer. You know, I have to be completely honest here, which is that after reading your account and after trying to picture this in my mind, it, it sort of comes like a combination of something out of Fistful of Dollars, you know, like the sort of the great Western standoff and one, one body hits the dirt and the other is left standing. And, and then you also have this sort of scene in which the, the killer is climbing the ladder in the barn to find the last remaining survivor. It's straight out of, you know, Freddy Krueger or something like that. I, I honestly, Tobin, I don't know if I'm ever going to have a sound night's sleep ever again. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Sorry my book did that to you, Ben, but uh, hopefully you'll be able to, to sleep at night. I'm going to try. I might, I might uh, up the dose of melatonin this evening, if you know what I mean. There's this one, <laughs> there's this one interesting wrinkle, though, and, and it's a really important wrinkle, which is that uh, amid all of the carnage and the bloodbath and the, the slaughter, I mean, it's just this grisliest of personal, intimate violence, you know, of this man against his entire living family. There is one other survivor, and that is his infant son. He doesn't kill the baby. Help us to understand that. Ohio is a land of mystery, from missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface to strange phenomenon slicing through her skies. From myths that have evolved around historic events and people to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering what happened. Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com One of the, uh, in the aftermath of the crimes, uh, one of the uh, relatives of one of the victims, and I actually don't remember the exact relationship, but he had a theory that he put forth that makes perfect sense. And there's a lot of circumstances that uh, lead to the validation of this theory. And it goes like this. Dunham was not getting along with the family. He um, wasn't getting along with his wife. Uh, the colonel tolerated him. It's probably a generous way of putting it. Um, he wasn't getting along with the brother-in-law. And so he had an easy out. Um, and the easy out was to kill the whole family. <laughs> and I know that sounds horrible, but uh, keep in mind that this was a very calculating psychopath that was uh, coming up with this scheme. And what he, I believe, intended to happen was that he would have killed the colonel and Mrs. McGlincy, he would have killed his wife, his brother-in-law, and the nanny, and he would have made it look like it, ha it was done by someone else. He would have subsequently appeared at the crime scene when all of the, uh, the police and the neighbors had realized what had happened, and he would have pretended that he was just as shocked as everyone else. It would have solved his marital problems and his family problems, 
but it also would have given him control of the entire McGlincy estate because the way the will was structured, um, in the absence of any other surviving relatives, everything would go to the baby. The baby's name was Percy. And so little Percy would have uh, been the beneficiary of all this, but of course he would not have had control over it. So Dunham, as his custodian, would have had control over the estate. That is the, I mean, that is the exact definition of premeditation, isn't it? I mean, he, he had it all worked out in his mind ahead of time. Yes, exactly. Do you, you do write that in his early marriage um, to Hattie, there there was this kind of interesting tension to where he seemed very much to be enamored of his newborn son, but he over time began to sort of shun her or neglect her in a way that became very visible to the rest of the family and to people who knew them. So how do you account for his sort of transference of his devotion there? Do you think that this plan was in mind from the very, very beginning that he would sort of use the baby as a legal trap? Or do you think that there was uh, just maybe some sort of psychotic break that occurred in, in some way that we don't fully understand? It, it definitely, he didn't enter the marriage. Uh, I don't believe he entered the marriage with the intent of ultimately gaining control of this estate. I think it was something that evolved. There is an interesting uh, twist to this. Before he married Hattie, um, his brother dated her. So that was kind of an odd dynamic. But uh, uh, for whatever reason, uh, his younger brother, Charles, and Hattie ended their relationship and James entered the picture. James was, uh, prior up to this point, uh, something of a drifter. He hadn't really made much of his life. He drifted from ranch to ranch as a ranch hand. He had some failed businesses. But it appeared that in the early days of the marriage, um, he was really trying to make something of himself. He enrolled at Santa Clara College, which is today known as uh, Santa Clara University, a very highly regarded Catholic uh, school. And he, he enrolled there and was pursuing a degree uh, with the, the goal of becoming a lawyer, and he worked hard, but he was also under tremendous pressure, uh, the pressure of being a father, a new husband, uh, tension in the house, and the academic workload. So certainly all of those things uh, had a role to play in the uh, deterioration of his relationship with his wife and his uh, extended family and the events that led up to the calculation he made to to kill his family. You know, here on Crime Capsule, and we don't glorify killers. We try very hard not even to sensationalize them in any kind of way. We try to understand them. And to come to an act so horrific as this requires just a, a really deep investigation into what, what could lead someone down this particular path. It is, it is so gruesome, um, and the consequences are so incredibly severe. You raise the term psychopath at one point in your book, and you offer some definitions and some framings for how we are to think about uh, psychopathic behavior. Where, where do you stand on labeling him 
uh, do you do you come down firmly on the notion that this is the exact model for it, or do you feel like there's room for some more interpretation uh, that that needs to take place? Well, having earned a, a PhD in uh, psychology from the University of Google, mm. um, <laughs> there you go. Uh, I, uh, I I I I believe you know my my understanding of a psychopath is someone who has uh, no real capacity for human feeling or relationships or emotion and their relationships with other human beings are transactional in nature. And in learning as much as I was able to about his background growing up, there was a lot of behavior that, that kind of pointed to an individual that was likable enough. You know, he had friends, acquaintances, but no deep friendships, no, no best friend, no, nobody that said, hey, I was his best friend since childhood. There, were, there was really none of that. And there were some really disturbing instances in his childhood that um, might not have stood out at the time they happened, but in the, the wake of the murders themselves, you begin to realize that, that some of those prior incidences were indicative of the kind of person that would do what he ultimately did. Right. There's often a pattern. It just takes seeing the pattern uh, before you can come to the conclusion. So we are in the very beginning of a summer series on great escapes. We are taking a look at the fugitives, the flights from justice, the going on the lamb. And this guy, James Dunham, after committing this horrific crime, he initiates one of the greatest great escapes in American criminal history that I am aware of. Um, Let's get him started, okay? Let's take a look at what happens immediately after the murders when he gets a horse from the barn and takes off. Where does he go? Well, before he did that, in fact, probably before he killed uh, McGlincy and Shable, uh, excuse me, McGlincy, uh, Briscoe, and Jimmy Wells, he went through the house and he removed or tried to remove every photograph of himself that was in the home. He overlooked one small little tin print uh, photograph, but he, he would have done that because back in those days, um, they didn't have surveillance cameras on the streets and on around every building. They didn't have people walking around with cell phones with, <laughs> that can take videos that can be pasted to the Internet. So uh, he knew that, uh, you know, absent a picture or a photograph, that it would be very difficult to even for authorities to even launch a search. So, yeah, he, so he takes off on the horse. It's genius. I mean, it, it's really genius if you think about it. Like, he knows exactly what he would be up against. You would have any depictions of him be sent out over the wire. And if, at best, anyone can only offer a partial verbal description, then he's already a, several steps ahead of anybody trying to track him to any cities that he might go to. I mean... You, I don't want to give him any credit, but you got to give him credit for that as far as just figuring out the the technological limitations of his day and age and exploiting them. Yeah, there he was a strange bird. He was a psychopath, he was a drifter, but he definitely was not intellectually challenged. He had he had intelligence. Uh, he was a decent student according to uh 
the professors at the college and people that had known him. So, um, yeah, he, he, he was smart enough to, to do that. Um, the challenge he had, you know, he, he hadn't planned on having to make a, an escape. He had planned on making these murders and quietly sneaking off into the darkness and re- reappearing as a shocked uh, observer like everyone else. Uh, his escape routes were pretty limited. You know, uh, Campbell and Santa Clara Valley, uh, you can go west and you're going to run out of room because you're going to hit the coast. Um, you, you have to go over the Santa Cruz Mountains and you're at the coastline. Um, you could go east and you have this huge mountain range to, to go over. Or you could try going north or south. And each of those presented challenges in terms of escape routes. He opted to head east for the hills. And uh, along the journey there, as he was escaping town, he was seen on his horse. Uh, he actually engaged in a dialogue with a, a passerby. He was looking for Shable initially because he wanted to kill Shable before he continued on with his escape. Um, and he stopped the passerby asking if, if that passerby had seen Shable. The passerby had not. And so Dunham continued on and off he went up into the hills uh, that border the eastern part of Santa Clara Valley. And there's this kind of interesting moment on, if I remember correctly, the murder takes place overnight on a Tuesday night, and it's sort of Wednesday that things, um, sort of Wednesday early morning where, you know, the investigation really kicks off and so forth. And you say that he is seen in town early that morning having breakfast, that he's sort of... uh, he withdraws all his money from the bank. He, uh, some people kind of who know him see him in town. Uh, they don't really engage all that much, but there's a sort of a passing uh, recognition. And, and I think my favorite part uh, of this account was, not, not that I love any part of this account, as you, as you know, but, but you know, one of the most interesting details is that he, he stashes his getaway car, right? Like every great escape needs a getaway car, and his getaway car is a bicycle. He is a wheelman in the, the lexicon of the day. I mean, it is just such. I, I stood up in my chair when I read this, and I said, "No, he did not do this, but he did." Yeah, I mean, by the the morning of the uh, of the event, of course, by that point, um, the 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 whole thing had been planned. In fact. Uh, in, in the weeks leading up to this, he had actually inquired with a, uh, a local lawyer that he uh, had, had engaged in casual conversation with and asked him a few questions about wills and estates just to, just to be sure that, in fact, if his plot were successful, that he would gain control of it. So he would gain control of the estate. So um, he, had, he had done his homework beforehand, and he, as you noted, he had stashed his bike nearby, uh, apparently with the intent of doing the killings, riding the bike back into town unnoticed, um, and then later, you know, reappearing as a shocked uh, observer like everyone else. Uh, what was his alibi going to be? Do we know, do we have a sense of, of what what tale he would tell in order to sort of try to cement his, you know, his innocence in all of this? He may have, to be honest, I, I don't recall off the top of my head if he, if he had a pre-planned alibi. Okay. Well, let me ask you this. I do want, I want to take one very brief digression here because I think it is interesting and um, you do devote a portion of your account to to this part of 
California history or sort of transportation history. I mean, I, I have been a cyclist in various forms over the years, and my bike shop back home in Mississippi has this great quote. I believe it's from Orson Welles, and he says, every time I see, and maybe um, H.G. Wells, excuse me, H.G. Wells, uh, he says, every time I see an adult on a bicycle, I no longer fear for the human race. It's something like that, right? <laughs> it's this yeah. wonderful, wonderful sort of sanguine um, statement. And what what did you learn about the culture of bicycle transportation in California at this time? There was a dedicated bicycle shop in Campbell, and obviously California's terrain is very up and down, so cycling there is a little more challenging than perhaps in Nebraska. But uh, what did you learn about sort of early cycling traditions as as the the technology is really kind of coming into its own in those decades? Cycling was very popular, certainly here in, in the Santa Clara Valley in San Jose and Campbell. And as you noted, there there were actually multiple bike shops in in San Jose and the surrounding area mm-hmm. at the time. There were um, bicycle clubs, both women's bicycle clubs as well as men's bicycle clubs. Uh, Dunham himself was was a well known and highly respected cyclist. Uh, he raced bicycles. Um, and, and there was even a, a bicycle racing track here in San Jose that was really popular back in back in the uh, 1800s and early part of the 20th century. I have to ask: Is that velodrome still in existence? No, it's not. Um, oh, uh, unfortunately, it's it's past. Its memory still lives, and uh, um, but uh, it's long gone. Well, uh, maybe maybe you can use your leverage uh, one day to to revive revive the tradition, bring it back to its former glory. Let's take a look at the other side of the escape here. What were Dunham is on his way? He starts to head down into the valley. He he has it. He gasses up. He's got breakfast. He gets his money. He starts his his flight. Um, what were the authorities doing? At this particular time, you have Sheriff Linden, who is still uh, sort of on and around the property investigating, uh, you know, the murders themselves. Uh, but you also have his deputies, and then you also have the courts, you know, the sort of the, the magistrate judges who have to authorize bounties and organize search teams and so forth. So give us a sense of what the law was doing in these very tender, important first few hours? You know, they always say that uh, to solve a crime, you, you need to do it within the first 48 hours, right? And, and that was definitely the case here. Um, you know, a few things happened very, very quickly. Um, first, because witnesses had seen, uh, seen him flee and they knew the direction he was headed, um, they quickly began to focus their search in the east foothills of the city. Um, and, and something that uh, your listeners who are not familiar with Santa Clara Valley uh, should know, because I think it helps kind of frame this, this scene, is that mm-hmm. these foothills quickly become a mountain range. It's, it's known as the Diablo Man, uh, Mountain Range. And mm-hmm. at one of the highest peaks in this, this particular area is the Lick Observatory, which was built in the 1880s. And... That mountain range and the road to Lick Observatory uh, created a path to escape from the Santa Clara Valley 
go over the mountains and into the Central Valley of California, which would have provided Dunham a lot of options for getting lost, if you will. So the search very quickly mobilized in the foothills of the Diablo mountain range, um, what's kind of known as the foothills of Mount Hamilton. And so that was one thing. The other thing that happened was that reward money quickly started flowing in very, in very short order. Uh, a number of prominent citizens in Santa Clara County offered uh, their own pool of money. I think it was like $5,000. And then the governor, Governor Gage of California at the time, pledged, I believe, $11,000 in state money. So that doesn't sound like a lot of money in today's dollars, but uh, you know, if you adjust for inflation and everything, we're talking, you know, probably in the neighborhood of over a hundred thousand dollars. So it was a lot of money, and it was enough money, and there was enough outrage to get people mobilized uh, and motivated to go and try and find this killer. So very quickly, volunteers started uh, uh, enlisting themselves in in this search effort. Mm-hmm. You even have the account. Uh, I mean, people are just kind of coming out of the woodwork, almost saying, "You know, we'll we'll get involved. We'll do what we can." And it really is remarkable to see the community rally around the the slain family in this regard. I was really struck, Tobin, by the fact that you had um, an account of an old uh, Union soldier, soldier for the the Union Army, uh, who was sort of an expert tracker and and knew the terrain and so forth and there he was working on behalf of the former confederate soldier you know someone who 30 years ago you know they would have been on opposite sides of the battlefield against one another that that is a fascinating twist for that generation which i think is lost to us today to some degree yeah yeah for sure so wednesday may 27th 1896 is when uh, the search lights off. Uh, You have the bounties organized, you have the warrants are issued, you have the teams gathering in downtown Campbell. You have uh, the very first lead. You have the bloodhounds, let me not forget the bloodhounds. We have to have the dogs in this story, right? The dogs are too important not uh, not to include. One of my favorite parts of the story, I might add. I mean, I only wish that we, we had had more pictures of of those dogs because they are, you know, clutch, right? They're, they're just absolutely essential. But if we're gonna I leave could, it, just to yeah. just quickly uh, kind of tell a little antidote, I, this is covered in the book about the dogs. But, uh, you know, as you mentioned, the search party had been mobilized. The base of operations was actually not in Campbell, but um, in the foothills uh, where Dunham had been seen. It was a a ranch in the foothills of Mount Hamilton known as the Smith Ranch. But what they had done was the sheriff had enlisted the help of one of his colleagues, uh, a sheriff from San Luis Obispo County, which is on the central coast of California, uh, about 225 miles away. So um, the early morning paper edition noted that uh, Sheriff Ballou from San Luis Obispo would be coming to town with his famous uh pack of bloodhounds. And that generated a lot of buzz in, in the valley, this, the Santa Clara Valley. Uh, apparently people were not that familiar with bloodhounds and perhaps because of the name of the breed, there were very high expectations, uh, enough so that a large crowd 
gathered at the train station to, for the arrival of the sheriff and these uh, these killer bloodhounds. And and the later article, of, uh, a later news release that came out later that day or perhaps the next day, uh, discussed the disappointment of the crowd. They've been expecting, I don't know, maybe uh, fangs with blood dripping <laughs> off the fangs. And, <laughs> no way. <laughs> Instead, what they saw were some rather smallish, nervous-looking hounds that were sniffing and not particularly fearsome, as the name might have implied. Oh, but we know today that they were very good boys. They were extremely good boys, weren't they? Of course. So, we have the first sighting. We have the bloodhounds. We have the first sighting, the first lead of uh, Dunham's escape is he... Word comes that he is glimpsed at the Smith's Creek Hotel on the east side of the valley. We're going to leave it right here for this episode, but the chase is on. The chase is on. And what a chase it was. All right. Fantastic. It, it is a, it's, it's a hell of a story. It's a hell of a story. Thanks for listening. Our guest today has been Tobin Gilman, author of The McGlincy Killings in Campbell, California, an 1896 Unsolved Mystery, published by the History Press. Join us next week as the manhunt takes off, the bloodhounds pick up the scent, and James Dunham begins his great escape. Crime Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with Arcadia Publishing and the History Press and is a member of the Killer Podcasts Network. Special thanks, as always, to our producer, Bill Huffman, our production director, Bridget Coyne, audio engineer, Ian Douglas, and our executive producers, Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. To learn more about Evergreen and our dozens of other shows, visit us at evergreenpodcasts.com. Through terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events, on our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there.